Wow. Andy and Henry, wow. Those were two of the most creative defraitora in memory. Henry, you used both humor and solid textual analysis to ask what we've all been wondering at every Seder since the beginning of time. What is so bad about frogs? <laughs> and the answers you explored led you to an important lesson about preparedness that applies to all of us with every threat, major or minor, that we face in our day. And Andy, you asked why Pharaoh didn't care enough to stop the destruction, connecting Pharaoh's inaction to our own inaction in response to fossil fuel disasters and gun violence and hate crimes and war and you ended by calling us to empathy and action to save our world. Truly impressive and important, both of you. In some sense, you were both speaking about the human capacity for caring. Henry, in order to heed your call to prepare for the bad things that might happen in the future, we have to care about the people who would get hurt. And Andy, you explicitly called on us, on, on leaders, but all of us, to care about bad things that are happening now, even when they're not in front of our faces, and even when they go on for a long time, and even when we feel powerless, and even when they seem far away from us. You told us not to desensitize ourselves, not to get bored, not to be arrogant or removed, but to care. So how do we care more and better? Is it possible to care for the whole world? If so, how? I don't know the whole answer to that question, but I think I know two parts of the answer. One part is spiritual, and one part is emotional. In the first two verses of our Parsha, Vaera, God says to Moses, Ani Adonai, Vaera el Avraham el Yitzhak ve'el Yaakov ve'el Shaddai, Ushmi Adonai lo nodati lahem. I appeared, I am Adonai, spelled yud Hey vav Hey. And I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai. But my name, yud vav was not revealed to them. The word revealed, nodati, has at its root the word da'at, which means awareness. Toldot Yaakov Yosef teaches that this verse means the secret of da'at, the secret of awareness, was not revealed until Moses. And what is that secret of awareness? It is, according to Meore Naim, that, quote, yud he vav he is the essence of all things. In other words, everything and everyone is filled with God's presence. To have this awareness, Meore Naim continues, is to look within all things at the inwardness that gives them life. So Moses arrives in Egypt from the burning bush with a new awareness about God the ability to see God's presence in every being. But according to Meorai Naim and the Baal Shem Tov before him, the secret meaning of the Egyptian exile was that Da'at, awareness, was in exile. Moses had this awareness, but literally no one else did. The Torah tells us in our Parsha that the Israelites couldn't even hear Moses because they were kotzer ruach, they were so crushed in spirit. Think about it. The Israelites and the Egyptians were in the grip of a pharaoh who hardened his heart. A pharaoh so corrupt and arrogant that he had no ability to empathize with his own people, not enough to act to reduce their suffering, and certainly not enough to care about the suffering of the Israelites. And in turn, the Israelites were so traumatized 
Their ability to see God's presence in themselves or others was in exile. It was utterly unavailable to them. The secret of caring more, the secret of caring for the whole world is the secret of awareness, of understanding, knowing, and seeing, really seeing that yud heh vav -Hey, God's presence, lives in everything and everyone. But it is so easy for that awareness to go into exile. When you feel crushed or oppressed, it's so easy for that awareness to go into exile. When you feel that no one sees you, that no one cares about your life or your suffering, when you feel that you're alone in the world, it is so easy for that awareness to go into exile. When you have enemies who want you dead, it is so easy for that awareness to go into exile. When 1,200 of your people are brutally, unspeakably brutally, murdered, and other people celebrate it, it is so easy for that awareness to go into exile. When 23,000 of your people are killed and the fighting is still going on and the world doesn't seem to care, it's so easy for that awareness to go into exile. When more than 100 of your people have spent their 100th night in captivity in tunnels, and the world doesn't seem to care. It's so easy for that awareness to go into exile. When two million of your people are starving and at the brink of famine, it's so easy for that awareness to go into exile. When on social media and on your college campus or in your neighborhood or in your workplace, hatred against you and your people indifference to your suffering grows on all sides and the people you thought were your friends say nothing, it's so easy for that awareness to go into exile. When your government tells you that the path to your freedom is violence and you cannot be free until the other side is killed or removed, it's so easy for that awareness to go into exile. When your government tells you that the other side are animals, that their little children are just terrorists in waiting. It's so easy for that awareness to go into exile. And when the awareness of God's presence in all living things goes into exile, you may find yourself doing and saying and justifying terrible words and terrible actions. When the awareness is in exile, you might find yourself denying or justifying that two million people are starving and at the brink of famine. When that awareness goes into exile, it might seem reasonable to propose that the other side actually physically go into exile from their homeland. When that awareness is in exile, it might seem logical to refuse to consider a state for the other side ever, even if that would enable the return of your hostages after 100 days in captivity. And you know that that awareness is far, far in exile when you're the one taking hostages, when you find yourself brutally and indiscriminately murdering and raping, and when you create targets out of hospitals and relief shelters and use children as human shields, when you find yourself celebrating a massacre, you know that awareness is in exile.
We are living in a moment when the awareness of God's presence in every living thing is indeed far away and in exile. And the way to bring it back, the only way to bring it back is to do what both of you are urging us to do. It is to care. Moment by moment, day by day, wherever we live, with whatever power we have, to care. To care about the problems of our world, to care enough to prevent the problems of our world, to care about the people those problems affect. But won't it be too much, you might ask? Won't it be too much to care about the whole world? And here we come to the emotional part of the answer. Adam Grant wrote about this very question, the limits of caring, in the New York Times last week. He wrote, inaction isn't always caused by apathy. It can also be the product of what psychologists call empathetic distress, hurting for others while feeling unable to help. Grant says that neuroscientists have discovered that what we used to call compassion fatigue is a misnomer. Caring itself is not costly to us. What drains people is not merely witnessing others' pain, but feeling incapable of alleviating it. In times of sustained anguish, empathy is a recipe for more distress, he says, and in some cases even depression. What we need instead, he says, is compassion. Although they're often used interchangeably, Grant says, empathy and compassion are not the same. Empathy absorbs others' emotions as your own. I'm hurting for you. Whereas compassion focuses your action on the other person's emotions. I see that you are hurting, and I'm here for you. It turns out that neuroscientists can actually see the difference in brain scans. When feeling empathy, our brains show that we ourselves are experiencing pain. And when people are in pain for someone else and cannot help them, they escape the pain by withdrawing. But when people focus not on sharing others' pain, but on noting feelings and offering comfort, a different neural network lights up, one associated with affiliation and social connection. Grant says, then when you see others in pain, instead of getting overwhelmed and retreating, you feel motivated to reach out and help. And the caring does not hurt or exhaust you. He says that a growing body of evidence suggests that compassion is healthier for you and kinder to others than empathy. Now, I will admit that this is not easy or natural for me. Yesterday morning, I spoke at a vigil at the UN marking the 100th day of captivity for the more than 100 Israeli hostages who remain there and calling for their release. For 100 days, they have been surviving in Hamas's tunnels experiencing who knows what trauma, unsure whether they will live or die. One of the speakers at the rally was Hila, a 13-year-old girl who survived 50 days in captivity. For more than an hour after meeting her and hearing her speak, I found myself actually sick to my stomach, in pain in my body, physically ill and unable to feel better. I rode the subway that way, I got back to my house that way, I began my work that way, the rest of my work that way. I couldn't feel better. Her pain was in my body. And I, like so many of us, have at times been immobilized, utterly overwhelmed by the pain and the horror and the suffering of this war, particularly because 
Many of us are family or feel like family to Israelis, and so take this incredibly personally. It feels like it's happening directly to us. But who does it serve to take the pain into our own bodies? How does it help? Instead, I tried yesterday to remember that what happened to Hila did not actually happen to me. Her pain is not actually my pain. I can care deeply. I can care more effectively. I can care longer term and I can care more broadly if I approach with compassion instead of empathy wherever and whenever I can. There is not actually an original word for empathy in Hebrew. Empatia comes from other languages. I'm not sure if it's English or Latin or I don't know what, but it's not originally Hebrew. Rachamim, which comes from the word rechem, which means womb, is the Hebrew word for compassion. And it's a very important, very often used Hebrew word. It is a form of caring, comes from womb, that recognizes our interconnectedness, that recognizes that we belong to each other. And it is also a name for God, harachaman. I think this shift from empathy to compassion might be an important part of our answer to how we can care more and better about the problems and people of our world. This is the Shabbat of Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. I feel fairly certain that Dr. King would want us to regain the awareness of God's presence that lives in everything and everyone. That's what he dedicated his life to. In his book, Why We Can't Wait, he wrote, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. We can do our part, each of us, to bring this awareness out of exile, to know, to understand, to really see that God's presence lives in everything and everyone. And from that awareness, to care with compassion about the world, one person, one living being at a time. As you said, Andy, getting people started is the hardest part. Once the ball gets rolling, once we've expanded our bubble to include the entire world, that's when the change starts to happen. Ken Yi Ratzon. Shabbat Shalom.